welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, Rachel Maddow, On the Media, The Show, and Real Time with Bill Maher. Let's begin tonight with the big story of the weekend, Iran Decision 09. of thousands of protesters angrily took to the streets to express their disappointment at, I'm sorry, actually, that's the celebration of the United States concerning a basketball team, <laughs> whose supporters were pleased. There's the Iranians expressing their desire for a more democratic future. Oh, street carnage. Is there, is there any occasion you're not appropriate for? I wonder what the mob will do for Father's Day. The Iranians were actually showing their frustration that on Friday, incumbent President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad defeated <laughs> challenger and reform candidate Mir Hossein Mosavi 62% to 33%. A landslide victory. Surprising, since the 85% turnout typically favors the reform candidates. And election results were strangely announced before the polls closed. <laughs> and Ahmadinejad won handily even in his opponent's hometown and also he's back insane. <laughs> Case in point, as government forces sought to disperse protesters using tear gas, baton-wielding motorcyclists and bullets, Ahmadinejad issued this statement. The situation in the country is in a very good condition. Iran is the most stable country in the world. The translator's not even buying it. Iran is the most stable country in the world. Nothing to worry about here. The sky's insane. As for the White House's response to the election, well, it's, it's tricky. You like that? All right. We weren't sure if there should be a dot, dot, dot. Fair enough. The White House response was tricky. It required someone who could deftly toe the line between questioning the legitimacy of the election without undermining Iran's fledgling democracy, a wordsmith, an elegant statesman. If no! Well, you know, uh, we don't have all the details. I don't think we're in a position to say. Did anything blow up? What did he, did he curse? Did he curse? Actually, that was surprisingly diplomatic. Mr. Vice President, it seems as though I am the one who has gaffed in reducing you to a crude caricature. And he, he, he's still talking, isn't he? You sound like you have doubts. Well, you know, I, I have doubts, but I, we're, we're going to withhold comment until we have a, you know, a thorough review of the whole process. I have doubts is a comment. <laughs> That's not withholding comment. Withholding comment doesn't erase. I have doubts. I have doubts is a comment. Well, you know, I think that dress makes your ass look huge, but I'm going to withhold comment. No, you've made a comment. You're going to withhold comment. Withhold comment. Ice Age heat wave can't complain if the world's at large. Why should I remain? Walked away to another planet. Gonna find another place, maybe one I can stand. I move on to another day, to a whole new town. 
You don't know where and you don't know when But you still got your words and you've got your friends Walking on to another day Work a little harder, work another way Well, um, um, baby, I ain't got no plan Gonna float on, maybe, would you understand? Gonna float on, maybe, would you understand? Well, I float on, maybe, would you understand? I am deeply troubled by the violence that I've been seeing uh, on television. Uh, I think that uh, the, the democratic process, free speech, the ability of people to peacefully dissent, uh, all those are universal values and need to be respected. And whenever I see violence perpetrated on people who are peacefully dissenting, uh, and whenever the American people see that, uh, I think they're rightfully troubled, particularly to the youth of Iran. I want them to know that, uh, that we in the United States do not want to make any decisions for the Iranians, but we do believe that the Iranian people uh, and their voices uh, should be heard and respected. That was President Obama making his first public comments on the incredible drama that is still unfolding right now in Iran. The third straight day of defiance, of violence, and of huge public demonstrations. Friday was Iran's presidential election, which the government says the incumbent president won in a landslide. Supporters of his opponents say that result is impossible, and they immediately and repeatedly have taken to the streets to make their objections known. Despite a government-imposed ban on all public demonstrations, and an opposition-supporting crowd that stretched for more than five miles marched from Tehran's Revolution Square to Freedom Square. That was reportedly the largest demonstration in Iran since the revolution there 30 years ago. The protest was designed to be peaceful. Some, protest some protesters held up signs that read, Silence. People on the scene reported chants of, Police, police, thank you, as the police let the marchers past. But the calm of that massive demonstration ended in violent fashion when, as the main march was dissipating, some protesters descended upon the compound of a pro-government militia linked to Iran's Revolutionary Guard. After a fire was set by protesters, members of the militia could be seen on the roof of the compound firing their weapons directly into the crowd. At least one opposition supporter was killed. Several others were seriously wounded. Mir Hossein Mousavi himself, the opposition candidate whose supporters believe he actually won the election despite the announced results from the government, he appeared in public for the first time since the election to address his supporters. Mr. Mousavi told the crowd through a loudspeaker, quote, we have to pursue legal channels to regain our trampled rights and stop this last lie and stand up to fraud and this astonishing charade. Iran's supreme leader, the man who really holds the power in the Iranian system, far above and beyond the power of the president, did order an investigation into claims that the election was stolen. Of course, that investigation will be carried out by the 12-member Guardian Council of Iran, which ran the elections in the first place. So expect, expect what you will of an unaccountable group that clearly has a horse in the race investigating itself. Still, though, the Supreme Leader has come some distance from his initial assessment of the election on Saturday when he called the results, quote, a divine assessment. 
from outside Iran and maybe even from inside, it is still difficult to tell what actually happened with the election. But evidence is now mounting that seems to support claims of massive irregularities. According to the Iranian government, President Ahmadinejad won by a huge margin, even in Mr. Mousavi's hometown of Tabriz, where Mousavi remains incredibly popular. An almost identical thing happened in Luristan, the home of another candidate, Mahdi Karoubi. According to Nate Silver at 538.com, not only did Ahmadinejad beat Karoubi in his base of support, he crushed him beyond all recognition. Adding further questions is the fact that Iran's interior ministry is supposed to wait three days before certifying election results. In this case, results were announced almost immediately, certified immediately after that, and then instantly approved by the Supreme Leader, who approved them again the next day, before conceding that maybe there should be an investigation the day after that. With the fourth day of protests expected, those of us in America are looking for something to compare this to, to give us some perspective. Is this uprising in the streets akin to, like President Ahmadinejad says, uh, the crowds in the streets after a soccer victory? It doesn't really seem that way. Are Americans getting a disproportionate impression of the support for the opposition because opposition voices are the ones that we're most likely to hear? Are we not getting a disproportionate impression? Could this really be another Iranian revolution? Or, God forbid, could this be another Tiananmen Square? Joining us now to help us gain some perspective is Boaz Jerjez. He's a scholar at, and Middle East analyst at Sarah Lawrence College. He's author of the book, Journey of the Jihadist Inside Muslim Militancy. Mr. Jerjez, it's so nice to see you. Thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure. In terms of the scale of these protests, how significant is what we're seeing right now? How big a problem is this for the Iranian system of government? Uh, the ruling mullahs are facing the most serious crisis in the last 30 years. The most serious crisis in the last 30 years. This is not about the existent, existence of the ruling mullahs. This is not, there is no danger to the existent, uh, existence of the regime. This is a crisis of authority, a crisis of legitimacy. They have lost public trust and support. Um, as Musavi said, in, in, in his first initial, he said, what has happened shakes the very foundation of the Islamic Republic, shakes the very foundation of the Isla Islamic Republic. The ruling mullahs or the ultra-conservatives within the mullah have given up all democratic pretenses and joined and join the ranks of traditional dictatorships in the Middle East. So if they, losing their authority, losing their legitimacy, losing public support, and therefore abandoning all pretense of democracy, how is life different in Iran when year from today than it is a week ago. Rachel, this tells us that in the next four years, unless this unfolding crisis is resolved in a transparent uh, way, Iran will be engulfed in social and political turmoil. Mm -hmm. Even though the existence of the regime is not at stake, the ruling mullahs, Ahmadinejad and the, 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 the various uh, uh, men uh, of the regime, cannot govern at home in an effective way, will not be able to pursue an effective and successful foreign policy. Their hands will be hampered inside Iran and outside Iran. And just a historical point, Rachel, no regime in the world, including the former Soviet Union, could govern based on coercion and force alone. You need public trust and public support. You need to convince the world that you are legitimate, you represent your people. How could the Iranian government say, we basically, we are a superpower, we have a particular foreign policy, even if its legitimacy itself is contested at home?
What happens to Musavi, to Katami, to Rafsanjani, to the other voices that have become the figureheads, at least, of this impulse toward reform? What happens to those leaders? You know, for our American uh, viewers, I mean, Musavi is not a liberal reformist. Right. Musavi is a conservative, moderate conservative. In fact, initially when he ran for office, many reformists were skeptical. Uh, because of his, I mean, conservative. He is a loyal son of the Islamic Revolution. He is part of the political inner circle of the Islamic Republic. Then why and has he and, become and, the figurehead and, and, for this impulse? And, and this is the question, yeah. because as his campaign gained momentum, he, became, he, be, he began to construct policies that addresses the hopes and the aspirations of young voters, and also the most powerful vehicle in his campaign was his wife, Zahra. Zahra, uh, Rachel, electrified the female vote and the young voters. Remember, the female vote and young voters represent about 70% of the population. 70% of the population are under the ages of 25 years old. And this is why, if the interior ministry says that the turnout was 85, percent, as, as it said, which we doubt, then surely Musavi should have done much better than the mere 33 percent. If the turnout was 85, because you see, Rachel, in 1997, in 2001 and 2005, when the turnout was, was high, both women and young voters basically powered powered the campaigns of reformist candidates like President Mohammed Khatimi and also a progressive parliament. This is why what has happened in the last few days goes against the historical patterns of Iranian politics. It flies in the face of facts, historical facts, and this is why it's so blatant. So if you really did get over 80% turnout, you wouldn't have an election Ab result like this. Absolutely. No in fact, truly, if, if the, the turnout was 85%, basically Musavi should have won by a landslide. Right. In fact, as one Iranian said, this is not about 1,000 votes or 10,000 votes or even 1 million votes. You're talking about 10 million votes taken from Musavi and given to Ahmadinejad. In the American electorate, you're talking about almost 30 million. And this is what... The, and the question really for us is that since Musavi is part and parcel of the system, why the ruling mullahs? Why, why, for example, the supreme leader and his associates did not really take the chance on Musavi? This tells you about the mindset of the ultra-conservative mullahs. This tells you that they're out of touch with reality. They are really, I mean, terrified of their shadows. They're really uncertain about the future of the regime itself. And this is why, I would argue, this is one of the most serious and existential crises facing the Islamic Republic. And certainly the degree to which democracy here is a charade is just, is just that much more, uh, that much more bare. Still afraid, where do his intentions lie? Or does he even have any? She said he never really looks at me.
Last week, journalists who traveled to Iran in search of election stories found instead the biggest uprising in that country since the revolution more than 30 years ago. Iranians poured into the streets, protesting what they charged was an election rigged in favor of incumbent President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Supporters of the challenger, Mir Hussein Musavi, rallied day after day, risking prison and much worse. Mindful of all the coverage, Iranian officials arrested dissidents, refused to renew the visas of foreign journalists, and, as this CNN clip suggests, clamped down hard on those who remained. Iran, Reza Sayyaf, permitted to file just one, just one report for all of our networks for the entire day. Our crews forbidden to witness the situation firsthand. And for that reason, you're not going to see a live report that we had planned. Not only did the government try to keep the world from looking in, it also sought to keep its citizens from looking out. Babak Rahami is a professor of Iranian and Islamic studies at the University of California, San Diego. He's in Tehran now and says that the state has been distressingly effective in cutting off the outside world. Especially after 4 p.m., the only source of information I have, really, I mean, I'm talking about a news channel, is Iran's state channel. And that's kind of scary because their version of stuff is really one-sided. CNN, BBC, all these different channels are out, including Internet, uh, just extremely slow, including telephone lines, especially when you want to call outside of Iran. But somehow, sometime around 1 a.m., when everyone's asleep, most of these, these things come back on. So the feeling of isolation from afternoon onwards is just a mess. I mean, literally, you feel like you're in a prison. You said that state TV is one-sided. What are they having to say about the unrest? It's literally a monologue. One voice that is telling everyone that there's just a bunch of hooligans that are running around destroying things, and they're also being funded by foreign agents. So the image they're producing is that this is a very much of a minority movement that are run by troublemakers, and the Iranian people in general just completely rejects it, which is, of course, not true. And they're doing this on a daily basis. What's your sense for the ordinary Iranian and how he or she filters the, the state news? I'm talking to friends and, and colleagues, and especially pro-Musafi people, and they said, look, we just turn off TV, and at this moment for the last six or seven days after elections, we simply talk to each other. Do Iranians know that the whole world is watching this drama with bated breath? Oh, absolutely. You know, this is, you know, 2009. I mean, most of the Iranians are getting the information from satellite TV. All these images that are coming about the protesters, actually, there are many Iranians are watching it on CNN, BBC, Voice of America, and also BBC Persia have been kind of blocked. But they could still watch these things on German TV, on French TV, on satellite TV. So, you know, there is a sense that the state is trying to hamper information, but at the same time, they're finding ways to find out. Twitter has been at the center of the conversation. It's unclear how much of a role Twitter has played, but we have seen a lot of press reports of Iranians using Twitter to give a kind of blow-by-blow description, but more especially those in the diaspora keeping others apprised of events. Twitter is a recent thing in, in Iranian society, especially among the youngsters. My hunch is that the diaspora community has kind of exaggerated the effect of Twitter. 
definitely there are some Iranians that are using Twitter in order to connect with other Iranians outside of Iran. But at this moment, I could assure you Twitter is not the main kind of new form of communication where Iranians, in which Iranians are using. The government has forbidden foreign journalists from uh, leaving their hotel rooms and so forth to report on the demonstrations. Now, strictly speaking, you're not a journalist, but you're behaving in a kind of a reporting capacity now. What risk are you placing yourself under to have this very conversation? My wife and I have been talking about this all week. I see myself as a researcher, as an educator, and not necessarily, of course, as a reporter, but if I could have a chance to express and reflect what's going on here on the ground to the outside world. I think I have done my job as an educator. I feel that I'm kind of safe because they would not expect someone like me giving out these reports. But again, the word is getting around, and you know, you never know what's going to happen. I'm just hoping for the best uh, at this moment. It's a kind of feeling of excitement, but at the same time, anxiety with me right now. Bobak, thank you so much. Thank you, absolutely. Babak Rahami is author of the book Internet and Politics in Post-Revolutionary Iran. The BBC Persian service, an all-Farsi satellite channel based in London, is banned by the regime, as are the ubiquitous satellite dishes, but every day it transmits the concerns of Iranians reaching out from inside the country via phone, email, and text messages. This week, despite spotty phone and Internet access, they still managed to call in reports of their experiences. Siavash Ardalan is one of the hosts of the talk show Your Turn. He says that they've been relying on citizen journalists in Iran for reporting and footage, including some disturbing tape of students being beaten by paramilitary forces in the Iranian city of Esfahan. Someone actually took a picture of one of the students who died as he was being filmed. Mm-hmm. This is the extreme of the kinds of images that we get. What our audience want now is just to see that there is such a huge rally. There's the oceans of people who have taken to the streets inside the capital and other cities, and this is the kind of material they send us. What's the most vivid phone call that you've gotten on your show? Can you share that? For me personally, it was a call I got the day before yesterday when I was hosting the show. An Iranian student in Birmingham, I think 24, 25 years old, he called in to say that that particular student who I was just talking about, who was killed in the attack of the Islamic vigilantes at University Dormitory, was his brother. And then he broke down in tears. That is one memory that will stay with me. The Iranian government has accused foreign press of fomenting the protests that have taken over the streets of Tehran and uh, other cities. How do you plead to the charge of being an instigator? I think one reason why this perception might be there is because most of the calls that we get are from the opposition supporters and the government itself, their own officials and their supporters refuse to appear on the on our programs. I think that's why this perception is created. You are served to Iran via satellite. Can you tell me how much they've succeeded in keeping your signal from Iranian viewers? It has been successful in the past day or two, especially. It's not a continuous jamming. Whenever the government feels that something is being said that may not be to their interest, we experience more jamming. This kind of, I guess, as much as any other story that you're going to run across, puts to test the notion of journalistic objectivity, no? I've been brought up to think that the best kind of journalism is objective 
journalism, and that's what I've been trying to live by and work by. There are urges, naturally, to the contrary. Our colleagues in the newsroom, we have some of our colleagues who, who do a report, write everything according to you know the way they should write an objective, but then when they look at the pictures, when they try to edit them, they break down and cry. So it's, it's, it's difficult for all of us. continues to focus on the Iranian people's quest to lift themselves up from the oppressive regime they toil under, it's become easy to forget that tyranny knows no borders and its victims can be found all over the world. Even here in the United States of America, specifically the Republican side of the House of Representatives. Check out what Republican Congressman Pete Hoekstra of Michigan tweeted just today. Quote, Iranian Twitter activity similar to what we did in the House last year when Republicans were shut down in the House. U.S. Congressman John Culberson of Texas wrote on his Twitter page earlier today, oppressed minorities include House Republicans. We are using social media to expose repression, such as last night's D, that's Democratic clampdown, shutting off amendments. When I see what's being done to the House Republicans, <laughs> the Iranian Revolution and what's happening to the House Republicans are the exact same. One group, victim of a fraudulent election, the other group lost an election, but still, <laughs> the parallels are eerie. Not parallels. What's the Perpendiculars. The perpendiculars. <laughs> Thus, Tuesday night, when Democrats cruelly, brutally, nay, savagely ended a House debate on spending around nine-ish, <laughs> Congressman David Dreyer lifted his voice in protest, saying, quote, I wonder if there isn't more freedom on the streets of Tehran right now than we are seeing here. <laughs> Then he went on to say, and I wonder if the lack of choice in the congressional cafeteria isn't just a little bit like Auschwitz. When you were young, you were the king of flowers, and how you built the tower tumbling through the trees, in holy rattlesnakes that fell all around your feet. And your mom
We start with the situation in Iran and President Obama taking on his critics on the right here at home. As a growing chorus of conservatives and elected Republicans call on the president to publicly pick a side in the battle in the streets in Iran, to say publicly that America is on the side of the anti-government opposition, President Obama is holding firm. He's sticking to his strategy and frankly, he's explaining that strategy over and over and over again. Here he was after a meeting with the president of South Korea. It's not productive given the history of U.S.-Iranian relations to be seen as meddling, the U.S. president meddling in uh, Iranian elections. What I will repeat uh, and what I said yesterday is that when I see violence directed at peaceful protesters, when I see peaceful dissent being suppressed, wherever that takes place, uh, it is of concern to me and it's of concern to the American people. Uh, that is not how uh, governments should interact with their people. Uh, and my hope is, is that uh, the Iranian people will make uh, the right steps in order for them uh, to be able to express their voices, to express their aspirations. How that plays out over the next uh, several days and several weeks is something ultimately for the Iranian people to decide. Something for the Iranian people to decide. In other words, obviously America is pro-democracy, we're against the suppression of dissent, and duh, everyone knows how the United States feels about Mr. Holocaust denier-in-chief over there and the theocratic dictatorship that hides about one inch below the myth of the will of the Iranian people. However, we'll be less likely to get an outcome we prefer. It will be worse for the opposition forces in Iran if the United States comes out and endorses the opposition outright. Right. That would backfire. And in case that case was not made clear enough the first time from the president, the president then put it in even stronger terms in a brand new interview with John Harwood on CNBC. The easiest way for reactionary forces inside Iran to crush reformers is to say it's the U.S. that is encouraging those reformers. So what I've said is, look, it's up to the Iranian people to make a decision. We are not meddling. And you know, ultimately, the question that the leadership in Iran has to answer is their own credibility in the eyes of the Iranian people. And when you've got 100,000 people who are out on the streets peacefully protesting, uh, and they're having to be scattered through violence and gunshots, what that tells me is the Iranian people are not convinced of uh, the legitimacy of the election. The president is saying, in other words, that the easiest way for the reactionary forces of the government in Iran to destroy this opposition movement is to say that that opposition movement is endorsed by us. It'd be sort of the equivalent of Karl Rove and Dick Cheney giving a big public endorsement to one of the candidates in a Democratic Party primary. That would be the kiss of death, right? That would ruin the chances of that Democrat winning that primary election. Same deal with us endorsing, the United States endorsing anyone in Iran. This is first semester level political science. This is strategery for dummies. This is impossible not to get unless, well... It seems by my lights that this administration has yet to express the unqualified support of the American people for those who are courageously taking to the streets 
for free elections and for democracy in Iran. Let me say from my heart, the American cause is freedom. And in this cause, the American people will not be silent, here or abroad. If the President of the United States won't express the unqualified support of our nation for the dissidents in the streets of Tehran, this Congress must. Because we really want to undermine them. Republican Congressman Mike Pence introducing a resolution that would effectively declare that the battle on the streets of Iran is really the Iranian government and President Ahmadinejad against America. The opposition candidate Mousavi and all his supporters are just instruments of foreign governments. That's helpful. But it's not just the voices on the I don't get it fringe of the Republican Party who are arguing for this unbelievable strategy. It's also the second ranking Republican in the House of Representatives, Congressman Eric Cantor. He's released a statement saying, quote, we have a moral responsibility to lead the world in opposition to Iran's extreme response to peaceful protests. And then there's John McCain. I think they should be condemned, and it's obvious that this was a rigged election and a, depriving the people of their democratic uh, rights. It's really a sham that they've pulled off, and, right. uh, and I hope that we will act. You talk about what the president should do. Has he not done enough? What more should he do? He should speak out that this is a corrupt, flawed sham of an election. They've, the Iranian people have been deprived of their rights. We support them in their struggle against a repressive, oppressive regime. Advice to consider if the president feels he ought to take direction on the appropriate nuance and tone in America's statements about Iran from this guy. That old Beach Boys song, Bomb Iran. Anyway, joining us now is Trita Parsi. He's head of the National Iranian American Council, a nonpartisan organization representing Iranian Americans. Mr. Parsi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Uh, I almost feel like I want to start by apologizing to you as an Iranian American for a presidential candidate having set the idea of bombing Iran to music, but the time has passed. I don't think John McCain would like me apologizing for him, uh, but I will ask for your response to John McCain's suggestion here. He and other Republicans want the U.S. to declare, them, declare the U.S. on the side of the opposition. What would be the impact of a strategy like that? Well, let's first think about this. They're coming out and they're saying that they should be siding with the opposition, siding with Mousavi. I'm really curious to know if they've actually been in contact with Mousavi and asked Mousavi if he thinks that that is a good idea. That's the, pa the test that we've passed to fail in the past, in the sense that we've made up our mind of what they should want, and then we act, and then even if it doesn't work out the way we hope for, we think that it's their fault that, we, that they didn't understand how genuinely positive our intentions were. We can't do it this way. I, mean, I think it's quite reckless to turn a political football into this uh, here in the United States, where in reality it can have severe repercussions on the streets of Tehran if the protests are being cast as being orchestrated from the United States. Is there a case to be made that Mosavi would not want the endorsement of the President of the United States, of the United States government in general? Is it possible that he would see that as a huge negative? I think it's quite possible, particularly if you take a look at the past history. A couple of years ago, the Bush administration 
put together a fund that they call the Iran Democracy Fund. Critics called it the uh, Regimes Change Slush Fund. And what they were doing is that they were saying that they're going to give money to NGOs in Iran and then implicitly saying that it was to, for them to do regime change. They never really asked the NGOs in Iran if they thought that that was something that they wanted. And the end result was that the Iranian government started to view all NGOs in Iran as potential uh, targets and potential enemies, and there was a significant clampdown on them. And major Iranian NGO leaders, as well as human rights defenders, such as Shirin Ebadi, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, came out and said, please, stop this. This is not what we need. Yet, Senator Lieberman ensured that it was uh, reappropriated. It doesn't seem as if we're even listening to the people as to whether this is really what they want. As you mentioned, Joe Lieberman is one of the people who have taken this line that the U.S. ought to be intervening, uh, actively saying that they're in support of the opposition and against the Iranian government. Also John McCain, also Steve Pence, also Eric Cantor, also Dana Rohrabacher. And I wanted to ask you about him specifically. He's not the most important Republican congressman in the country, but he does have a lot of Iranian Americans in his congressional district. He has gone so far as to directly call for regime change in Iran, in addition to saying that the U.S. government should come out overtly in support of the opposition. What's your reaction to those comments from Dana Rohrabacher in particular? Well, the thing is, uh, polls have shown consistently that the Iranian-American community overall is very negative towards the government in Iran. But at the same time, they're strongly against war. They very heavily favor uh, diplomacy between the two countries in order to be able to resolve the differences in a peaceful manner. And whenever the United States is saying that it will be pursuing regime change, it strikes a negative chord with most Iranian-Americans because of the very same history that President Obama referred to, mindful of the 1953 coup that the CIA uh, uh, orchestrated against the democratically elected prime minister in Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, mindful of the support for the Shah and the perception that existed that the United States was ensuring that the Shah would stay in power. To go forward now, at this very critical stage, with no sensitivity to the history, to no sensitivity that we actually have not heard from the Iranian people, is there, if, if this is something that they want, I think really is reckless. Public Radio. This is Up to Here. Up to Here, a daily once over, not so lightly, on the story at the top of what's behind today's news. I'm Milton Getzler in Washington. In the week of last week's presidential election, Iran has entered a period of instability not seen in that country since the revolution that toppled the Shah in 1979. The Shah, of course, remained toppled until his death. But this week, after what opponents say was a rigged or stolen election, 
News of demonstrations and street protests have spread worldwide through Facebook and Twitter. And of course, CPR's own Middle East Bureau Chief Jessica Spiegel-Cheeks continues to monitor the situation from her post here in Washington. President Obama has been attempting to walk a tightrope, not wanting to appear to meddle in another country's politics, while also wanting to meddle in Iranian politics. If we were talking about just another country, we wouldn't even be talking about it. But of course, in the aftermath of a war which weakened its chief adversary in the Middle East balance of power, whatever happens in Iran has significance for Americans at the pump and in the pocketbook. And so our guest today is joining us not so much for his expertise on Iran or the Middle East, but for his expertise in the field of disputed elections. Former Vice President Al Gore, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Milton. I only wish my current TV had studios as nice as these. Well, may a Burger Queen die and leave you in her will. Oh, thanks. Mr. Vice President, mm -hmm. as you've sat and watched developments in Iran this week, how do you think the opposition has handled the situation? Well, Milton, obviously the candidate who supposedly lost the election, Mr. Mousavi, has a very challenging role to play right now. He's a member of the establishment. He's not a rabble-rouser, but he also has to answer to millions of supporters. He can't just you know, fade into the background now and grow a beard. Especially since he already has one. Exactly. <laughs> Frankly, if I were him, I'd gather around me some really accomplished legal advisors who you know, can walk him through the steps needed to appeal this election result. You know, they've got a very complicated system there with a parliament and the guardian council and so forth, and clearly that's not something a layman can pick his way through. You mentioned the guardian council. Mm -hmm. What do you make of their offer to recount a random 10% of the votes in this election? Well, of course, I have had some experience in that regard. I would tend to lean on the side of asking that all the votes be recounted. Now, of course, there's a fear on the part of the opposition that a lot of ballots may already have been destroyed. So then you have to look at some kind of a, a waiting system. Waiting, as in not doing the recount right away? No, no, no. You want it done as quickly as possible before people start thinking of you as a sore loser, mm -hmm. you know, Norm Coleman type of character. But you do want to see if you can get a waiting kind of arrangement to compensate for possible ballot destruction. You wouldn't want to you know, count certain ballots twice or anything, but you might want to count the votes in Mr. Musavi's, let's say, his his four most favorable districts first, so that if the recount were stopped at some point, you'd at least have those votes recounted fully. And the value of that would be... Oh, it would have an incalculably major impact on world opinion, which in a situation like this is what you want. What about the pro-Ahmadinejad demonstrations? Uh, do you think they're a spontaneous expression of support for the man, or is this part of something manufactured and manipulated? I don't know for a fact, Milton, although I have seen some reports that these are Ahmadinejad operatives who've been sent out into the streets either to make trouble or, or make news, uh, or both. But again, this is where really good legal advice becomes so important because you can sue to find out. Is that likely to be successful in revolutionary Iran? Well, you know, you're spending campaign cash. You either spend it or you eat it. It's not like you can 
diverted to current TV or something. You mentioned Norm Coleman. Mm -hmm. Are there any lessons for Mr. Mousavi in the way supposed Senator-elect Al Franken has been handling himself during the months of court wrangling that have followed that election? Well, one thing uh, is I, I say Al has been very well advised uh, not to do any public joking during this period. It would have detracted from the gravitas that's necessary in this kind of situation. He doesn't tend to get that many laughs anyway. I would think Mr. Musavi would be following very similar advice at this time. Finally, sir, on another subject, mm -hmm. I know you've kept relatively quiet on the matter of the two women from your TV channel who've been sentenced to 12 years by the North Korean government. Is there anything new you can tell us today? Nothing about their situation, of course. We're monitoring developments, but basically we're doing what the administration asks us to do to not make their job any harder. I can tell you this, though, Milton. Mm -hmm. The programming pods, as we call them, that were going to have been filled with the reports from North Korea, instead they're going to be programmed with exciting new content uh, generated by one of our viewers, a, a six-part series on how to build hemp furniture. Very cool stuff. Mr. Vice President, thank you for giving us the benefit of your experience on this turbulent time in Iran. Oh, my pleasure, Milton. Don't forget, count all the votes. And up to now, you're up to here. We had help today from the Argent Foundation, helping public radio build new studios while laying off staff. And from the John T. and Catherine L. Nachtman Foundation for coverage of items of interest to Catherine. I'm Milton Getzler. Join us next time we get you up to speed, up to here. This is CPR, Continental Public Radio. should be speaking out much more clearly on behalf of the Iranian people. I believe that we could be more forceful than we have. I think he was uh, very slow off the mark. I'd like to see the president be stronger uh, than he has been. We should lead. And I also think he should point out that this is not just a Iranian issue. This is an American issue. This is an American issue, says Arizona Senator John McCain. And it is true 
that this is an American issue to the extent that Iran is where Republicans appear to be working out their issues with each other. On one side, as we just saw there, we've got Senator John McCain, his best friend forever, Senator Lindsey Graham, Senator Chuck Grassley, and also that guy from Law & Order. On the other side, they've got a whole bunch of opposition from among other Republicans. We could start with former Reagan speechwriter Peggy Noonan, who writes, quote, to insist the American president in the first days of the rebellion insert the American government into the drama was short-sighted and mischievous. The Ayatollahs were only too eager to demonize the demonstrators as mindless lackeys of the great Satan cowboy Uncle Sam, or whatever they call us this week. John McCain and others went quite crazy, insisting President Obama declare whose side America was on, as if the world doesn't know whose side America is on. This was aggressive political solipsism at work. Always exploit events to show you love freedom more than the other guy. Always make someone else's delicate drama your excuse for a thumping curtain speech. The Republican opposition to itself also includes figures like the first man you'll hear from in this group of clips. It's Nicholas Burns. He was the man who oversaw Iran issues at the State Department for George W. Bush. President Ahmadinejad would like nothing better than to see a very aggressive uh, state, series of statements by the United States which try to put the U.S. in the center of this. I think President Obama is avoiding that quite rightly. It's a balancing act. I think uh, the president has been very effective in, ma in maintaining that. The president's being roundly criticized for insufficient rhetorical support for what's going on over there. It seems to me foolish criticism. I think the president has handled it well. I think it's the proper position to take. For us to become uh, heavily involved in the election at this point is to give the clergy uh, an opportunity to have an enemy right. and to use us, really, to retain their power. The Republican Party lost the last election and therefore isn't in a position to wage actual war on anyone else right now. They are, however, definitely winning the war on themselves. Joining us now is Chris Hayes, Washington editor of The Nation magazine. Chris, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Rachel. I want to make sure I understand both sides in this Republican fight. What is it that John McCain and Lindsey Graham and all those guys actually want the White House to do? You know, that's a really good question. I mean, I, I think there's, in, in the long mythology of neoconservatism, there's this notion that, you know, Reagan single-handedly brought down the entire Soviet empire because he said, tear down this wall. And, and that somehow, if you're, like, really willful and chest-thumping, that the world will sort of bend to your will. So I, I imagine they want, you know, sterner rhetoric. They want some kind of escalation. Lord hopes that they don't want some kind of military action, although you never know, because people have been advocating all sorts of crazy things vis-a-vis -vis Iran for a long time, so I don't know. I always, I, I've just found myself thinking, if they got what they wanted, if they got, like, pure bellicosity from the president, would they think that the Iranian people would then take to the streets in protest of their government? They're sort of doing that already on their own, and it seems like yeah. it shouldn't be totally immaterial that the opposition in Iran isn't actually asking for America to wade into this. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, if you look at Shirin Ebadi, who was the, the Nobel Prize, Peace Prize winner, was a human rights lawyer, she said she thought Obama's comments were appropriate. She thought it was important that the U.S. not insert itself too fully. Akbar Ganji, who's another uh, dissident, a human rights activist inside Iran, said the same thing in interviews. So, I mean, that's really where you want to be taking your clues from at, at a moral, solidaritaristic level, from act, the actual people working inside the system. And there's just a tremendous pathological narcissism on, the, on behalf of people like McCain and 
Graham, that, that everything revolves around the U.S. and revolves around our own kind of preening moral self-satisfaction. And it's actually, it's really destructive. I mean, if, they were, if, if the president were doing what they wanted him to do, we would see things get worse in Iran, worse for the dissidents and protesters. And I, it's very hard to, to, to excuse. I think it's one thing to understand the impact or the potential impact of what they're asking for on the situation in Iran. It's another thing to understand what the Republican Party is now and whether there is a credible alternative to Barack Obama's foreign policy vision in Washington right now coming from the right, if not the left. And on the right, well, Steve Bennon at Washington Monthly put it this way, and I thought this was smart. He said, we're not dealing with a dynamic that pits the left versus the right or Dems against Republicans. Rather, this is a situation featuring neocons versus everyone else. Do you think that's right? Do you think this is sort of a resurgence yeah. of neocon ideology? Yeah, you know, I read that post and I thought I, I, I thought it was very smart also, and I agree. I mean, I think that there's there's this really virulent strain of neocon uh, ideology that 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 is kind of manifested itself. I think John McCain, in some ways, is the most intense of the true believers in terms of elected officials in American life, in, in which every battle is a battle between the righteous U.S., um, which is a beacon of freedom, and the evil forces of oppression, tyranny, uh, wherever they may be, in whatever kind of uh, regime they might be occupying, and that everything kind of in this solar system way, the, the U.S. is the sun, and all foreign policy revolves around us and the freedom that we cast out into the world. And that's that's exactly the the worldview that you're seeing represented in the comments that are that are being made by the by by people like John McCain. And I I don't think it's long for this world. I mean, I really want to hope that this is kind of a dead ender, last gasp of, of this sort of thinking about uh, American foreign policy because the the actual real-world results of it have been so disastrous. And one sign of its short-livedness, even though it's not a word or even a phrase, maybe that the opposition to it, the most vociferous opposition to it, is coming from within uh, Senator McCain's own party. Look at your young men fighting. Look at your women crying. Look at your young men dying. The way they've always done before. interpreter for Iran's president Ahmadinejad. He's the grandson of an Ayatollah and the author of a book called The Ayatollah Begs to Differ, Human Maj. Human, how you doing? How you doing? Nice to see you. Oh, that's interesting footwear you have there. Is that in support of the revolution, green shoes? I wouldn't call it a revolution, but it's in support. Yes, it's in support. I'd of call those shoes a revolution. <laughs> They're Iranian.
so, <laughs> so the first question I want to ask you is it looks to everybody like this election was stolen. It was. Can we safely? Yes, put, yes. Yeah, so that debate is over. It's over, yeah. Okay. So I think what I'm wondering, maybe other people too, is if you're going to steal an election, why do it by a landslide? Well, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. well, I think that somebody, and I'm not saying who, because I don't know, and I don't think we can prove who it was, but somebody probably in the Ahmadinejad camp decided to go and steal the election somehow. As the Supreme Leader said today in his speech, it's impossible in Iran to stuff 11 million ballots. When you win by that much, people doubt that there could be fraud because in the past, in the last 30 years, elections in Iran have been considered fair, even by people who oppose the government. Generally fair. Khatami won in a landslide against the Supreme Leader's wishes, against the government's wishes. So it's generally considered fair. So the idea that if, if it was a small margin, as the Supreme Leader said, yeah, maybe you could uh, rig an election by two or 300,000 votes, but 11 million? Come on, this is shocking. So this is the old Hitler, <laughs> big lie. Yeah, right? well, that's what, yes. I, a big I, I lie. That, People yeah. believe a big lie and not a small lie. Except this time it didn't work because the shock worked right. for about a day. A day. A day and a half in Iran, people were in complete and shock. Iranian people are smart. Well, they tend to be, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> Much smarter than we give them credit for in general here, yes. Right. Yeah. So I guess the big question is what's going to happen tomorrow? It's sort of un unfortunate that we're on tonight and then we're taking a break for a couple of weeks <laughs> because this seems to be we're right at the crux of when the real shit's going to hit the fan. The shit could hit the fan tomorrow. I mean, everybody... Oh, I, you speak my language. I do, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> thank God we're on HBO. Or, um, but, uh, Allah. I know uh, thank Allah. Mean. I was going to say thank Allah. Yeah. Um, because yeah, it, tomorrow is the big day, right? Really, when we find out if the people are going to face the bullets. Yeah, I, I doubt very much, uh, it's my own personal opinion, that uh, there won't be bullets tomorrow. I think the police are already out on the streets in Tehran. I spoke to a couple of people late at night in Iran. Um, it's eight and a half hours, well, from East Coast, it's right. eight and a half hours ahead, um, 11 and a half hours from California. And there is a police presence in Tehran right now. People are tense, they're worried, they're concerned. But everybody I spoke to in Iran said they are going. They're going at 4 o'clock. Now, unless Musavi, who is the leader of this movement, the leader of the person, the leader of the group that's saying we have to have a revote, not a recount, um, because it's such a sham. It was, was never, the votes were never counted, is what a lot of people believe right now. Because as the Supreme Leader said, how do you stuff 11 million ballots in two hours? It's very difficult, handwritten ballots. And this Musabi, I mean, obviously this is the person they're rallying around. Yes. But is he really the person they should be rallying around? Because he was prime minister before yes. in the 80s yes. when they were fighting the Iran-Iraq war. He mm -hmm. worked for the first Ayatollah. Correct. He, he doesn't seem like a real liberal. Well, I mean, he's liberal by the standards of the Islamic Republic. He's very liberal by the standards. Of the, and he's also changed in the last 20 years. Has he really? He has, yes. Um, I don't know about that. I, mean, <laughs> I hung out with the dude in the 80s. Oh, you did? You know, look, well, nobody... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, nobody can be really responsible for their life in the 80s. I mean, look at where I was. You know, this is my, you know... <laughs> there I am doing the Watus. <laughs> Well, when uh, I was in Iran up until a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I spent some time with his, um, his wife, Zahra Ahnabad. And, really? Uh, well, I, yeah, it was for <laughs> her journalistic purposes. All um, right, Senator Ensign. <laughs> yeah. And um, she's also changed. Uh, and I think she, uh, from what she was saying, I, th I believe that Musavi has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. He's much, much more liberal now than he was. Now, that doesn't mean he's a firebrand revolutionary. Right. And he's probably a reluctant revolutionary at this point. 
he has gotten himself into a position where if he backs down, his credibility is shot, and he's dis, you know he's disappointed millions and millions of could, supporters. But could this be a real revolution? Because no, you know it can't be. No, I don't think so. I don't think it's a real revolution in the sense that we're perhaps some people here are hoping it is. Um, I think it's a revolution, an internal revolution in Iran. Uh, to kind of like figure out. I mean, there's people like Mousavi who believe that Iran should be in a post-revolutionary state now. And there are people like Ahmadinejad and the Supreme Leader who's backing him who believe that Iran should remain this revolutionary country that's stuck in 1990. Because I got to tell you, from my point of view, a revolution as opposed to evolution mm -hmm. in Iran mm -hmm. would mean not a government run by religious leaders. Correct. That's a revolution. Yes, I doubt it's that a, that's happening. That's not going to happen. Well, most of the supporters... Because that, to me, the elephant in the room yes. is that you know, this is still a government run by clerics. I mean, the idea that the vote is ultimately in the charge of the supreme leader, that, that word alone troubles me. Yeah. Supreme leader, guardian council. This is very Orwellian language. Yes, a yes. And, you know, this is like if we had a disputed election and we and we turned it over to Pat Robertson. Well, we turned it over to the, we turned it over to the Supreme Court, which here. is still better than Pat Robertson. It's much better than Pat Robertson. I mean, where would this country be if Pat Robertson was making these kind of decisions? If every time we had some dispute, well, let's turn it over to Pat Robertson. Right. right. Well, the Supreme Leader has taken this upon himself, and actually, he it, to be fair, he didn't say I have made the decision. He said they should abide by the law and go. Go to the Guardian Council. I mean, these are words that are Orwellian in, in English. They're right. translated from Farsi. They're less Orwellian. In fact, the word supreme doesn't even come into this title in Farsi. It's just rahbar, which means leader. Um, so it's... Well, it was, well, I'm glad you bring this up about translating it, because yeah. we hear a lot out of Iran uh, and other Muslim countries, but especially Iran, this phrase, death to. Yes. It seems to come up a lot. Death to America. Yeah. You yeah. know, death to Smoochie. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. Mean, anything they don't like, they say death, death to. It, yeah. Does it really mean they want to kill us? Of course not. Okay. In, in the campaign, while I was there, Ahmadinejad had started passing out free potatoes of all things to people to his supporters. Really? And the uh, Musavi supporters said death to potatoes. That doesn't mean. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's an expression. It's just something they say, like I mean, have a nice day. Yeah, well, or down with. <laughs> it's be it's we, better translated as down with. But uh, you know, it, it, yes, literal translation is death to. But they say death to myself. You will say death to myself in Farsi, or something like that, which is, which is, you know, obviously doesn't mean you want to be, you know, God strike me dead. That would be equivalent. So it's yeah. cute, not scary. It's cute, and it's cute if you think of it that way. Yes, it can be cute. Yeah. And uh, it's I definitely also, not scary. I also heard uh, the Supreme Leader blame everything today on the Zionist media. You know, it's a good thing you Muslims don't drink. Because I do. <laughs> well, you're one of the good ones. But uh, no. Because I mean, if there was a drinking Water. game where every time they blame something on the Jews, I mean, they'd be drunk all day long. <laughs> they they what, blamed what? it on the Zionists. They blamed it on uh, the foreign, uh, foreign nefarious foreign hands. The British, in particular. Um, these, you know, this is all memories of 1953, the Mossad right. coup. Um, the CIA and the British MI5, MI6 were responsible for that, and we know that now as part of our history, uh, Iranian history and American history. And this is something that President Obama is very aware of. There's not a very good history of United States involvement and British involvement in Iran. Um, and it's very easy for them to blame anything that goes wrong in the country on outside influence. In this case, I think they're wrong. There's no, there really hasn't been a foreign hand 
in these demonstrations. This right. is completely spontaneous. And this is people, the reason I said it's not a revolution is because these are people who initially came out on the streets because they were so shocked that the one thing, the one democratic aspect of the Islamic Republic that has always been reasonably democratic in the last 30 years, the vote, that had been taken away from them right. for the first time, which is why there was so much shock. Well, let's hope next time we talk, the history is better. Well, let's hope. Thank yes. you very much. Thank you. Good to see you. I appreciate you coming by. Okay, okay let's meet our friends. Excuse me, my microphone is falling off me, or I'm getting a goiter. <laughs> All right, let's meet the panel. Since 1997, he's been a regular contributor to Time Magazine. Our friend Joel Stein is right over here. He was a top advisor to President Bill Clinton and is now a CNN political analyst. Paul Begala is right here. And our returning champion, she's the BBC's Washington correspondent. Her new book is Womanomics, Katty Kay. Okay, so let me pick up on uh, where we were over there, uh, which is uh, Obama. He was starting to talk about him, and I would ask the question of the panel, uh, because Obama has been criticized on some, in some quarters as not uh, participating enough in this controversy. Do you think he's handling it the right way? I think he's absolutely handling it the right way. This is not a situation where America can gain by being too involved. As Humam was saying there, it's very easy for Ahmadinejad and the mullahs to start saying this is a Western conspiracy. You're already seeing those signs up on the streets with the BBC and a big cross through them, Britain with a big cross through them. In fact, actually... How, a good, did, how did the British get to uh, jump over us as the but number one I know, one for bad once, guy. actually, I'm this, a little is, a, this is a very good that. time for Obama to keep quiet, because we're the bad guys this time You are the great Satan. We're the very great Satan. We're only like the middle of the I'm road. Sorry, I'm Satan. sorry, you can get it back again, though. If Obama starts speaking out in favor of all those crowds too loudly, you can get it back again. Yeah, some of my neocon friends are saying, well, he should ramp up and he should really speak up. And, you know, like the last guy who freaked out and invaded the wrong country. You know, maybe uh, <laughs> one of the icons, Indonesia, maybe Italy, Ireland, just pick an icon country and invade it, Mr. President. Yeah. Um, it was a spelling right. issue. I like that he's, it, this has been a strategy. Look at his inaugural address. Look at his speech on Nauru's, the Persian New Year, to the uh, Iranian people. Look at his speech in Cairo. He has helped to stir this debate, and then he's stepping back so they can't blame America. I think it's been brilliant. And he can yeah. always ratchet up. You and know, he, he kept Twitter to... going, which was the important thing, I think, as far as yes, the truly. Yeah, I, th I think the soft diplomacy works, right? We it does. We're going, we drop some cases left over from the 70s of those Ayatollah Asahola shirts that <laughs> we've got sitting around. Just kind of stir it up and stay right. back. I mean, you, you wonder if uh, instead of bombing countries in the last eight years, we had beefed up internet access in the Middle East. You wonder if things might be a little different. And there's not a very good history of American or British involvement in the region. So I'm trying to think of an area of the Middle East where we've actually had some successes in the last 20 or 30 years, and it's hard to think of one. Kuwaitis like one, us. One thing I would say is that, you know, there's yeah. a tendency here in America when it comes to foreign policy to say these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. And a couple of weeks ago, nobody had heard of Mir Hussein Mousavi. Now suddenly he's the good guy. Is and I have, guy? Like, well, I have questions about that, yeah. whether he's a real reformer. And there's a sort of oversimplification that sometimes happens here with that's the bad guy and that's the good guy. And I'm not sure in this case it's quite as black and white as that. It does right. seem like we're choosing between like Jerry Falwell and Pat Roberts. And they're not even the real leader of this country, right? It's like they're having a revolution about the governor of Nebraska or something. But like, that's I don't know if this is what we want to get involved in. Right. And I spent a lot of time memorizing how to pronounce Ahmadinejad. <laughs> so I'm for free and fair elections, but... <laughs> but you know, right. yeah, I got my limits.
Thanks for listening, everybody, and welcome to July. It's a brand new month. Everyone knows what that means, of course. It's time to go vote at Podcast Alley. Last month was not quite the resounding success I was hoping for, and I will certainly take some of the blame for that. I didn't bother to let you know what the goal was. I think that had you known that the goal for the number of votes for our show was as low as 150, somewhere between 150 and 200 votes will get us into the top 10. And had you known that, I'm confident that you would have taken the 30 seconds out of your day to go submit your vote and and be a part of that group of people to put us in the top 10. I've made it really easy. Just go to bestoftheleft.com and click on the link to Podcast Alley. It'll take you to exactly where you need to go. Submit your vote. Very easy, very simple. Other than that, I just wanted to thank a couple new members to the show. As you know, I've been encouraging you to become a member to help support the show. Memberships start at as little as $5 a month, but the two people I'm going to thank today both went above and beyond that and have signed up to donate $10 a month to help keep this show going and to keep it going at eight shows a month on that two-show-a-week schedule. So today I've picked out of the pile not so randomly uh, members number four and five, Catherine C. and Catherine C. I promise they are two different people. Uh, signed up one right after the other, both donating $10 a month. It's a little suspicious. It's possible that they're the same person. But uh, Catherine with a C and Catherine with a K, both last names start with C. Thanks so much for your support. And to those of you considering becoming a member, I promise I am working on member benefits above and beyond the regular show, above and beyond the fact that you're helping to keep the show going strong. And I will be letting you all know as that develops. So that's it for today. Stay connected with the show via Twitter and Facebook and by subscribing to our newsletter. You can support the show with reviews at iTunes and, of course, Podcast Alley, where you can vote every month. You can get the show on your smartphone without having to sync at Stitcher.com. Visit the show notes on the blog to find links to all of the sources and the music that we used in this episode. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend from bestoftheleft.com. Burning on a shining shoe